Hello there, and welcome to the Presidency Podcast, member edition. This is episode two, Colonial History of Virginia, part two. First, I would like to thank you so much for supporting the Presidency Podcast. It means a lot, and support like yours will ensure that I will be able to continue making the podcast and continue to give you quality episodes. If you enjoy your membership, please do tell a friend about the show, and please recommend to them the extra member perks. This member's episode is all about the foundation of the first permanent English colony in what would become the United States, Jamestown. Even though the colony of Roanoke was a colossal failure, the land of Virginia was still there, seemingly patiently waiting for an English return. This, however, would not come until 1607, when three vessels meandered into the Chesapeake Bay. Around a decade and a half after the abandonment of the Roanoke colony, in 1604, a treaty between Spain and the English was signed. This treaty ended most hostilities between the two European powers and ultimately freed English men, money, and material to be used towards a new colonial empire. In 1606, King James I granted the future settlers of Virginia and many other colonies a charter to settle the New World. Now that most of the hostilities with Spain have ceased, wealthy men in England could no longer make money investing into privateers, who were essentially state-sanctioned pirates. So they looked into the new lucrative prospect of colonization. So prosperous men such as lawyers and even some professional privateers such as Sir Walter Raleigh became investors and leaders in new companies that set out to make it rich in the new world. The first major company that was formed was called the London Company. They were the ones who funded much of the early American exploration, including that of Roanoke. They soon changed their name to the Virginia Company, so from now on I will be referring to them as such. The Virginia Company gained a charter in 1606 to colonize and govern Virginia. Think about that. I think that is pretty crazy that, imagine the United States, that we just randomly gave a company the right to govern a city or something. It's insane. Shortly after getting their charter, in December 1606, the first ship sent to colonize the New World by Britain since Roanoke set off. They took a route that followed the trade winds to the Canaries, then down to the Caribbean, from which they followed the Gulf Stream up to Virginia. 144 men set sail from England in good spirits. However, of those 144 men, only 104 souls reached the Chesapeake in 1607. They looked for a suitable place to settle and, try as they may, establish a new and permanent British colony in the New World. The three ships that creeped into the Chesapeake were the Godspeed, Discovery, and the Susan Constant. They found a tributary that poured into the Chesapeake and sailed up the river for around 60 miles. Their goal was to find a more secluded spot, which was away from the natives. This perhaps was a direct result from the unsolved mystery of the Roanoke colony. I can almost guarantee that those aboard those ships were becoming increasingly concerned with the possibility of following the destiny of the Roanoke settlers. As they crept further into an unknown and alien land, that destiny had to be on their mind. The river which they traveled upon, they of course named the James, in honor of the king, James I, for he ascended to the throne following the death of Elizabeth I. Eventually they found a location up the James River. They chose a peninsula formation, believing that it would provide the most protection from any hostile natives. 
This was a common strategy to build on the peninsula's four important and strategic cities. For instance, a small Greek settlement of Byzantium was chosen by Constantine due to its ideal geographical location on the peninsula. However, this specific location that the British chose was not wholly to their advantage. While it was secure and it did not seem like there was a lot of native activity, that was probably for a good reason, as the location they chose was essentially a swamp. And on top of this location left the settlers surrounded by a prison of thick and mysterious woods and swampy land. This left the colonists quite boxed in and massively susceptible to infectious disease. This colony would be named Jamestown, the first successful and permanent British colony in what would become America. In 1606, a Virginia company was granted a charter to set up a colony in the New World, so Jamestown's was, just as many of the early colonies, a colony that was created for enterprise and almost exclusively business-motivated. Britain was late to the colonial game, as we discussed in the last episode, and after seeing the vast quantity of treasure that other Western European nations were making, they finally decided they wanted to get in on the game. This, however, as we will see, will lead to increasing hardships for the settlers because many of them were just there for the money and were not trained frontiersmen. The settlers of Jamestown already experienced the ever-present specter of death from their trip across the Atlantic. As I stated previously, 40 would-be settlers perished at sea, which I find unsurprising. These men were not experienced sailors and definitely did not have their sea legs. The month's trip through the roller coaster of water would have been unbearable to the Englishmen. Now they were isolated and alone in a foreign land. With malaria already spreading among them, they knew that it was either work hard, build a shelter, and grow food, or perish. However, they did not have a good start. Immediately, the Jamestown settlers did not pool their resources in farming and building, but instead, they went on lengthy hunts for gold and silver. On top of the wasted efforts on precious metals, it was very difficult for the colonists to build a stable community, since there were no women in the colony. This made it very difficult to build households and trust among the others. So let's just imagine this. A group of 100-odd men are dropped off in the North American wilderness, with no clue how to survive, and in an inhospitable land. Can you imagine what that would have been like? You were out in the woods collecting firewood, trying to scrounge around for what food you can find, since no one in the group knows how to grow food, especially in this climate. However, you spend your time away from camp, not knowing if Edward back in the wooden fort is going to survive the night, because he won't stop crapping himself to death. Every rustle in the bushes would stick your hair on edge, thinking you're going to get an axe in the back of the head, as the tales of the American Indians would have trickled their way to England and filled their heads with fear. The ironic thing is that the Jamestown colonists literally only survived the first shaky years due to the support of the local American Indian tribes. This is quite ironic, because the first colonists would not let the natives see any of them die. They wanted to give them the allure to the Native Americans that the colonists were more than mere mortals. But after a while, this just became impossible. The Natives showed the colonists how to use agricultural methods that would work in the Virginia climate, as opposed to the methods which they were using that functioned well in England. Contrary to what you might believe, the American Indians in this region were actually a settled people with a strong focus on the planned agricultural society. The three main American Indian tribes located around Jamestown Colony were the Algonquin, the Iroquois, and the Sioux. These three tribes were actually part of a greater group of united tribes called the Powhatan Confederacy. I will perhaps give this group of tribes an episode themselves in the future. These tribes had permanent villages that were surrounded by an organized field of crops. They were not a nomadic society, but rather stationary. The crops that they grew, and in turn went on to show the colonists how to grow, were beans, pumpkins, and corn. 
And by saying corn, I'm talking about maize. You know, the yellow stuff. I wanted to make this a point, because when we look at history before the introduction of corn from the New World, the term corn is used a lot. Specifically, I think of the term corn being used in regards to Roman history. We read these histories, and you might be confused, because you're like, hey, I thought corn was only in the Americas. And you'd be right. Corn, or maize, is indigenous to the Americas. However, corn was used as a catch-all term for cereal grains before it was adapted to essentially meaning just maize in the modern English parlance. Examples of other cereal grains would include wheat, barley, rye, millet, oats, and milo. If you don't know what some of those are, you probably don't live in a rural area where there is no underground sourced irrigation. And they're mostly used just to feed cows anyway, so it's not really important. Anyways, the natives showed them all sorts of stuff like how to grow legumes next to the grains in order to enrich the soil, something that is common knowledge today and something we learned in every third grade history class for some reason. However, it does not stop there. The American Indians showed the Jamestown colonists how to hunt the local game and how to fish the local water systems. They showed them how to build canoes, which were the perfect mode of transport for the many estuaries of the James River. It is very clear that without the help from the local tribes people, the Jamestown colonists would not have made it through the winter. However, even with the help from the American Indians, the colonists still looked upon them as the other and simple people who were on their king's land. Which is ironic, because after just a few months in Jamestown, only 38 of the original 144 colonists were left standing. Jamestown was still teetering on the edge in 1609. However, the Virginia Company, formerly the London Company, remember who originally had the King's Charter on the lands of Virginia, became more and more ambitious. In 1609, with the prospects of their Jamestown colony uncertain, the company requested an updated new charter from the King that would grant them more power and would enlarge their claimed territory. They received it, somehow, and they looked to improve upon their potential by shipping more men and resources to the New World. The Virginia Company offered stock in the company to planters that migrated themselves to Jamestown on their own dime. They also agreed to ferry poorer people themselves to the colony, in turn for seven years of service in the company. That same year, nine ships departed from England, which carried 600 people, and at this time, women and children were added to the list. So believe it or not, things did not start well for these new colonists. England, even coming in late to the colonial party, just could not figure things out. Other nations have been colonizing successfully for decades, but for the English, they just had a very strong learning curve. For one of the nine ships that sailed across the Atlantic sunk during a hurricane, and the second had bad luck near the Bermuda Islands and ran aground. Think about this. A vast Atlantic Ocean, there's like three islands, and you've run into one? Okay. This put the ship months behind for repairs, and in a classic early colonial America, many of the second wave of Jamestown settlers died of fever before the winter of the year even hit. And when the winter of 1609 to 1610 hit, it was extremely severe. This short period became known simply as the Starving Time. This is ironic, because before the Starving Time happened, there was a certain someone named Captain John Smith, who led the colony from 1608 to 1609. He constantly told the colonists that, hey, you need to focus on food, you know, growing, collecting, gathering. But of course, he could not get everyone to stop focusing on one thing. As I stated earlier, the men of the colony were focused on gold and silver. Smith even wrote, quote, there was no talk, no hope, nor work, but dig gold, wash gold, and refine gold, unquote. For a while, the colonists spent most of their time collecting gold and loading it on a ship that was sent back to England. But with a crazy twist, when it arrived laden down with gold, 
it was found out all the gold was fake. You know, fool's gold, iron pyrite, imagine them. So happy they found all this gold, thinking that they're going to be super rich. And then find out months later, when they're suffering of the lack of food and the cold, that they hear, hey, by the way, all the gold you sent was fake. Many of the colonists actually never recovered from this revelation. And I understand why. By now, the local tribes had realized that the colonists spelled trouble and began to leave them to their own devices. This problem came from the genius and bold tactic of the colonists just to steal the food and supplies from the American Indians when they refused when asked. So they would be like, hey, can I have some food? They're like, no. They're like, I wasn't asking. On top of the lack of assistance from the local tribes, the natives also stopped the progression of the colonists from further expeditions into indigenous land. This left the colonists trapped on their marshy peninsula with little game and failing crops. They resorted to eating rats, cats, and dogs, snakes, toadstools, or even horse hides. This is a very common and desperate trend in history. The idea of eating leather as a means to quench the pains of a starving stomach. It is said that they go so desperate that they even ate a corpse of their own countrymen who perished. The ship that ran aground in Bermuda finally did make the Jamestown following the winter, and when they arrived they found only 60 gaunt people left alive. The people of the new ship took the survivors and loaded them aboard. Everyone giving up on the colony, they sailed down the James River back to England. However, on their way back to the Metropole, they ran into another English ship coming up the river. This ship was not alone, but rather it was simply one of a fleet sent from England, and carried on this fleet was a first. It carried not only supplies and additional colonists, but it included Virginia's first colonial governor, Lord de Loire. Thomas West was the third baron of de Loire, however the twelfth of its time. He was the largest investor of the Virginia Company, which gave him the position of governor of the colony. And I'm not sure if you have connected the dots yet, but if you look at his name, Delaware, you can see where one of our original states gets its name, Delaware. Upon seeing the governor, and after a short and reassuring chat, the colonists turned around and picked up where they left off at Jamestown. I would like to put ourselves in the shoes of two groups of people real quick. First, the colonists departing Jamestown. They sat through the starving time barely making it out, resorting to eating leather and even cannibalism. They were finally rescued and boarded the ship bound for home, thinking to themselves how lucky they were for surviving another failed experiment in English colonization. Lucky that they did not end up missing like their fellow Roanoke colonists and thinking that these lands must be cursed, that it just wasn't meant for the English to colonize this land. Then they see another ship, flying an English banner. At first, I'm sure they felt confusion then hope that they were a friendly face, then dread knowing that they must turn back. Turn back to the literal hell that they just pulled themselves out of, having to be reminded every day of the horrors and pain that happened on the very soil that they now called a home. The second group that I want to discuss is the American Indians. I am sure that they always kept a watchful eye on their European neighbors, whether or not they were helping them. After months of letting the colonists survive on their own, and no doubt knowing their despair and the terrible winter. It must have been a great relief to see what little remained of them boarded the ship and sailed off. Watching the great wooden ship sail away and hoping that the hell that they endured would keep them away, or make them go somewhere else. They must have cheered and celebrated, but it must have been equally shocking to see a fleet of the English colonists return just for a short time later, and this time they looked more poised than ever to stay. Now with Governor De La at the helm, new settlements sprouted up up and down the river next to Jamestown. 
Shortly after the governor set up shop, a very important plant was discovered by the colonists. That's right, tobacco. Tobacco was new to England, but not to other European colonial powers. For instance, the Spanish have been growing it for years in their colonies. Brought on the fleet with De Loire, the famous John Rolfe began growing tobacco in large quantities in 1612. This became successful, and was the first profitable crop that Jamestown produced. This caused more and more cultivators to grow it, which, in turn, incentivized the colonists to push deeper and deeper into indigenous land. A strong, dictatorial figurehead was exactly what the colonists needed to be successful. And Governor De Loire and his successors, Thomas Dale and Sir Thomas Gates, were all very harsh on the colonists and imposed rigid and strict discipline. For example, the governor set and organized the settlers into work gangs. Individuals who went against the rules were punished. They could be subjected to flogging, hanging, or even broken on the wheel. And believe it or not, this was not a super productive way to manage the colony long term. The communal system and essentially press labor created a system where the colonists were essentially under the thumb of these overly authoritarian governors. They would evade work and generally be insubordinate. The reason that they were impressed on these work gangs was so the Virginia Company could receive payment for their trip to the New World. These members of the work gangs were the indentured servants that you have heard a lot about growing up in school. Eventually in the future, in order for the company to receive the payments from the colonists and also to keep them from revolting, the governors took a different approach. First, they stopped having the colonists in Jamestown work in gangs around the clock to pay off their time. Instead, they remained to work only part-time for the company, and the rest of the time they would tend to their own private plots, and, in turn, give a portion of their own grain to the colonial storehouse. This drastically improved the morale of the settlers and made them more productive. Of course, this system of indentured servants would eventually be replaced with African slaves. Jamestown was not always a happy place among its first years, but due to the strong and often harsh leadership of the early governors, it started to become prosperous, and even self-sustaining. It even started to expand. Up and down the James River from the original colonies, settlements began to line the banks and start growing. The two main reasons for the eventual success of the colony were due in part, as I said earlier, to the early dictatorial aspect of the gubernatorial leadership, but also since the colony now had more men, they had increased military success against the local American Indian tribes. This was important for the growth of the colony because it let them have more breathing room per se, i.e. access to more fields, fisheries, and hunting grounds. Their military incursions in the tribal land allowed the colonists to focus on the tasks at hand and less about the potential Native American attacks. However, the most important thing that led to the major success of the colony, and what we will start the next member's episode on, was tobacco. I briefly mentioned this a little bit ago, but it truly is what first set the American colonies apart in the early colonial period. And with that, I think we'll go ahead and wrap up this member's episode. I really appreciate you becoming a member and supporting the show. I hope you enjoyed this part two of my exclusive member series on Virginian colonial history so far. If you have any comments or concerns, please email me at presidencypodcast at gmail.com. Also, feel free to follow me on Twitter at thepresspod. Finally, if you did enjoy this exclusive content, please recommend not only the podcast, but membership to your friends or anyone else who would be interested in the show. Word of mouth, I feel, is the best way to grow a podcast. Majority of the new podcasts I start listening to usually come recommended from a friend. So please tell others about the Presidency Podcast. And with that, hail to the chief. <laughs>